everyone. Welcome to Coach Your Podcast. Thanks for tuning in and here's what we've got lined up for you this week. I keep coming back to that. But a right back might might be inside the box on a counter-attack. Now, if we've never coached a player at a right back how to do that and we've told them, oh, you're a right back, you're a defender, you defend in our half, then when that counter-attack happens, do they see an opportunity to go and join in that counter-attack where they could be the one that scores that goal? Or do they go, I just got to get it clear? Is, is That's a great point to sort of like start changing the narrative as well because yeah. I think, again, it goes back to like the human nature being, oh, we have to fit things in boxes and everything has to be tidy. It takes as long as it takes the player to, to grasp that concept. In this episode, we speak to Nick Barron. Nick possesses over 10 years of coaching experience and is really passionate around progressive formations. So as you listen throughout the episode, you'll hear us talk about this topic as well as how we coach and develop this. Hi Nick, um, thanks for joining us on the Coach Hell podcast. Um, it be really good to kind of get your insights into some of the areas we're going to look at um, in this episode. Um, just really briefly, just give us a little bit of a rundown of kind of where you're at at the minute a bit of your experience and kind of where we'll be going with this. Yeah, definitely. My experiences have been over a decade globally. I've worked in eight countries across four continents and really built up from a lot of on-grass capacity and a lot of different sessions from a community base and working in schools to working in academies and and uh, and working with charities to make sure that we build football programmes and partnerships beyond that for young people boys and girls to be able to play football regularly and have access to other opportunities as well. Oh, brilliant. And like I said, you're not working in the coaching capacity at the minute, but you spoke a bit, like I said, when we, when we spoke, um, getting you invited on for this was, you talked about this idea of like progressive formations. Uh, yeah. So just like to kind of um, expand on that a little bit and just tell us kind of where you're coming from with this this kind of idea and concept, mate. Yeah, for, for sure. I mean, from my side growing up, it was 4-4-2, 4-3-3, and you just heard numbers. And, you know, even go even further to that, number nine, number 10, 11, seven, to the point that you go further back and players were laid out into, you're a two, you're a right back. And when I started coaching, I thought that exact same way, you know, and as we do, we fall into the habits of what we know. So as I've developed and as I've, I've learned and spoken to other coaches and moved on from there, what's come out of that really is that actually it's the roles that we have. So when I speak about progressive formations, what I'm really speaking about in a bit more detail is actually how does a formation lead us towards the style of play that we're coaching? Whether that be for a competitive side, you're working in a senior side where you know you have to win in your next game. Those three points are important. So how do progressive formations get you to that style of play? How do we're teaching, for example, a counter-attacking topic within a youth sector? How do we really reorganise a formation so that the way in which we line up our magnets on a whiteboard or or players line up on a pitch how do we get that to be the most i guess conducive to those players being able to counter attack 
So from my side, I think that there's two lines to it really is, well, what's the line and what's the purpose of what you're doing with football? You know, is it that we're trying to teach a concept and that development comes first and is more prioritised in terms of, go back to my counter-attacking example, you want more opportunities to counter-attack than you're bothered about winning. Okay, then how do we set up a formation that allows us to do that? We want to win and we want to do it this way because it allows us to expose the opposition's left-sided centre-back. Well, okay, well, how do we get a formation that allows us to do that? So coming away from the first line of, oh, this is how we're going to play today, being a 4-3-3, to actually this is how we're going to play today and this is your individual role and responsibility within that team. And that might mean, and we see it all the time now, that when the magnet goes on the whiteboard, you look like a right back. But actually, you might spend more of the game in that inside forward position because the winger is occupying that wide area. And, you know, that's because they want to get more crosses into the box or they want to get the opportunity to beat someone one-on-one -on -one and go to the byline. So I think with progressive formations, it's, it's progressing away from being numbers and it being magnets on, on a board. No, I really like that. And kind of taking back to kind of your first couple of points, who really influenced you around this? Was it a case of you went away and studied this or there was a light bulb moment listening to someone one day or you're watching the game? Where would you kind of say you got your passion for this from? Yeah, a bit of both, really. I, I worked with James Robinson in Australia, who was a fantastic coach. I really did enjoy working with him. Um, and he used to lay out... a real like imbalanced formation and and when we come into the context of this being more applied to the youth side what one thing I did want to touch on was actually progressive formations being static sometimes but I'll come on to that in a moment but working with Robbo he, he was great with you know really thinking outside the box and some of the ideas he had were were really really clever essentially one of his one of his favorites and one of the ones I really did take away from him was if we go back to, you know, I guess for, for people to try and relate to it is it would be a 3-6-1. So he would play a three at the back, i.e. essentially what it was was two centre-backs and a left-back. And it could be, you know, inverted, so it would be the other way, two centre-backs and a right-back. You play a, a box in midfield, so two holding players and two tens. Um, but then you would have the wing-back on the other side, but then out of possession, that became a back four. And what would happen is that the wing back, i.e., whether that was the right or the left, what would happen is that inside holding midfielder would actually then, when they would go forward and transition would happen, they'd fill in at right back. So then sometimes that wing back would actually have to tuck in and fill in a central area. So realistically, it looks like a jigsaw then. But I think if we, if you approach that from a development perspective, that youth perspective, then you come away from the fact that in that situation that I've, I've quoted there is the right wing back's got further forward. He's in the final third and we transitions happened. We've just lost possession. Well, okay, great. That holding midfielder is now tucked across to fill that, that area of the pitch. And what I don't want to trip up on is, you know, saying a right back when I'm contradicting myself, but what I want to do is try and use common terminology that everyone's going to, you know, understand. Yeah. But, yeah, that holding midfield is tucked across, filled that right-back spot. That wing-back now recognises one of the dangerous areas is potentially the near-side pocket in front of the centre-backs. So they need to recover into that space. 
So as opposed to labeling that right wing back as right wing back or right back, where they then think, oh, my area to protect is there. But that holding midfielder has addressed that immediately themselves, where then you've got other gaps all over the pitch. I think those progressive formats that I saw Robbo use all the time and the way he would coach it with coaching runs and coaching moments of the game was what really gave me a lot of focus on, well, actually, this is a really progressive way to coach and a really progressive way to come away from, right, we're playing 4-3-3. No, we're playing this style of football. Each player would know their role and responsibility in this moment of the game or that moment of the game so that when that would occur, then they could sort of glue to the plan as best they could. So he was really influential with that. And I think you also, you know, you look at Pep with, with City looking at where you've got full-backs who tuck in as holding midfielders when the ball's on the opposite side of the pitch. So I think we're starting to see from where I, the age I was when I started coaching, where it was just 4-4-2, I think we're now seeing so many more opportunities where things expand further. We've gone on from the days where Mourinho would put a holding midfielder in and all our minds would blow in England. We're now seeing actually these crazy formations where City have just won the league and realistically they haven't had a recognised number nine for a majority of their games. But, you know, they've got an extraordinary amount of points to win the league. So formations are something that is a stigma that I could sit in a pub and, and talk about all day long in terms of come away from here's my magnets and here's my numbers to actually what are the roles and responsibilities and what is the style of play that we're trying to deploy. Wow, really interesting. You mentioned in there about um, the progress, progressive formation being static. Uh, can you elaborate yeah. on that a little bit? Yeah, definitely. I think something that was from my Gillingham Football Club days was we would work in the academy setup, and this was really when the EPPP was first introduced and working with the under nines there, you know, essentially we would play a diamond. So it would be five aside, you know, one defender, one on the left, one on the right and a forward. And then you'd go to seven aside or six aside and it'd be, you know, one defender, one central player, one left, one right, one, and they would be the areas of the pitch they would occupy. So what, what those static formations is what I'm talking about is actually, if you look at the image of five aside being a diamond and then six aside being a one, three, one, and then a two, three, one at seven aside, what you can start to see are actually that diamond shape you started with as a base is progressive the whole way through that. When you then go to nine aside and, you know, that would then play a three, two, three. Well, you've literally got two diamonds alongside each other in, in that three, two, three. So what, what we're really looking at there and what we're trying to understand really is that with that static state is, yeah, it's five-a-side diamond because we, that means then they're going to be comfortable when they play seven-a-side or they're going to be comfortable when they do this. Well, how, how do we teach um, defending in pairs? in a diamond you know because if we're if we're playing a five aside and diamond and you've got the the forward in that situation and the left side and right side players who are all further forward well yeah you're going to be defending outnumbered from that point there is actually sometimes i think people get stuck 
in static formations with this is how we play, but how many opportunities do we lose to teach young players other elements of the game? And I've always been an advocate for not, oh, we play 4-3-3 or we do this or we do that. It's having coaches who understand that this is maybe what we've been focusing on from a youth side in the week. This has been our, our training topics and this is what we've been teaching. Well, how, do we, how are we going to get the most opportunity to try that on a game day? You know, okay, with this style, because it's going to allow us to have more wide players than central if we're working on a wide topic, developing wide play, something like that. But then the other side to that is, well, this is why we're playing this formation, because the opposition play this way. Therefore, we think we can expose them a little bit more and get points on the board. So as opposed to, oh, we play 4-3-3 because we play 4-3-3 and that's it. It's actually now how can we come out of those static methodologies that, like I'm saying, we look at with the five side to the seven side to the nine side is just progressive because you've got the magnets that fit in the right places at the right times. Yeah. Where would like play, so again, probably more towards the YDP, PDP kind of phases, where would player profiles fit in there? It is a great question because I think the first thing that players look at with a player profile is, oh, well, what am I? Who am I? Am I centre forward? Am I this? Am I that? But I go back to it is, you know, there was one the other week, I can't remember, in the Champions League, I think it was in the lead up to the Real Madrid game for City where, I think he was, it was either Jack Grealish or Jesus. He was talking about, you know, potentially have to play him at right back or something like that. We saw it in the Euros final, didn't we? With um, Rashford being brought on, I think it was to play at right back, you know, because yeah. he, was, he was on to get to penalties. But I think going back to what you're saying about player profiling, I think what, what we're in now is, is a day and age when we look towards the more professional side of the game. Because I think what we can make the mistake as coaches doing is just talking about the professional side of the game and forgetting that there is the other side as well. But when we look at that, realistically, the, the idea of a senior level is to win. So if you've been told as a young young man or young young woman that your whole footballing journey, that you are a number seven, you're a right midfielder, for example, right? And you get into a senior setup and you've got an opportunity to play regularly in the senior side in the first team, but as a right back, don't turn that opportunity down just because some coach for five years in a row told you you were a right midfielder. No, you learn how to play right back, but that's the mistake that coaches are making now is not teaching players every element of the game that encompasses every position on the pitch. So like I'm going back to, how do we defend that number? How do we counter-attack from a wide area? How do, we, uh, how do we defend inside the box? How do we score goals in the opposition box? All these little topics that add up. So going back to player profiling, I think the key part is, is not labelling players. And where would that come in? It would come in on a Saturday or Sunday, whenever you play your game, is this is where I think you're going to be most suited in our shape today based on what we've been doing in the week in terms of our learning in the week, what your area of development is going to be. For example, if I've got a player who, I don't know, has got a weak, weak left foot 
you know, one of their under 14 in the YDP, one of their areas of improvement, one of their targets is to improve their long range passing with their left foot. Okay, well, I'll put them at left back then. Because my idea is I want to develop these players. If I've got a, a player who can only play at right back in a senior side and I want three points from that game, but we really have gone through our plan for the week and we're lining up to play in a 3-5-2, you know, and I don't have a room for a right back, then where that player plays is on the bench because our goal is to get three points and we've got players who might be better suited to getting that. So going back to sort of where does it fit in in the YDP, PDP, I, I would really start to come away from, oh, this player is a this and more these are the areas of the pitch that we see you occupying. Yeah, no, I see where you're taking it. And in terms of, probably, again, going through like the development side, do you think this is something that can be almost periodised throughout an academy? Or is it yeah. something that, have you seen good structures or bad structures in, in kind of your, your experiences? Yeah, I have. Um, I don't want to name clubs, but no, don't yeah, it is literally. I, I've seen clubs tell players that they are, you are a striker, you are a number nine. Now, what we're doing there is we're, we're basically saying this is all you're going to be. But like I said, is if you go into a senior side and they say, actually, we think you've got physically, you're very quick, great 1v1, you know you strike the ball really well, cool, we're going to play as a winger. Like, what we're doing realistically, psychologically, for young young athletes is we're pigeonholing them. But it's human nature to look at things and want to put them in boxes, want to try and classify things, want to try and, you know, okay, this thing goes in here, we need to have things all neat and tidy. What I think is there's beauty in the chaos that actually I could look at a, an 11-a-side pitch, and, you know, what I like doing personally is I like having every single position dotted on the pitch. And then you can say to players, right, OK, I can see you being a... Well, not being a, because that goes against what I've just said, but, but playing as a this, 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 this. Now, that might mean that we've got players who have got... Oh, actually, I can play as... And again, I'll go into the sort of the nouns that everyone can sort of, I guess, be common with, yeah. but right back, right midfielder, right winger, and then all of a sudden left winger, because actually I see you being further forward, and then left inside forward, right inside forward. So now it's, okay, these are the areas of the pitch we can see. So in order to sort of have that visual and that illustration that comes with it, you've then got, yeah, all these, these positions labelled out, sweeper, free right centre-back, central centre-back, holding midfielder, right holding midfielder, all these, as you would on your FIFA. And uh, and then being able to sort of mark those off where you see the players being able to fit on the pitch. Um, that is, and, and that I think is the, the part that comes into it as we go from a more, from a younger base, as we get closer to the senior level of the game. I think players, I don't want to say should start to specialise, but what they really need to do is be exposed to more opportunities to play in one certain area of the pitch because then more opportunities is going to be more learning opportunities for them to make mistakes and understand why X didn't work in that situation, but it worked here. So if we keep jumping players all over the pitch, 
then that can be an issue. But as I said, is you know, you take the right back example, I keep coming back to that. But a right back might might be inside the box on a counter-attack. Now, if we've never coached a player a right back how to do that, and we've told them, oh, you're a right back, you're a defender, you defend in our half, then when that counter-attack happens, do they see an opportunity to go and join in that counter-attack where they could be the one that scores that goal? Or do they go, I just got to get it clear and then I'm just going to hold my line? You know, so, I mean, yeah. look at Kyle Walker, one of the best right-backs playing at the moment. And realistically, if they're on a counter-attack and Edison receives something from there, he's the quick, one of the quickest players in the world. You're telling me his first thought isn't, I'm going to bomb forward as quick as I can so I can try and support there. Maybe yeah. it is, you know, so I think... We just need to teach players less about, oh, you are a this and you are a that, more uh, these are the situations and areas of the pitch that you can be most deadly in. Yeah, it's, it's really interesting. I think the kind of, over the last 10 years, the, pro the progressions you've seen in kind of formations and player profiles has been like, your wing-backs now are almost, like we said, failed wingers, aren't they? So they've got them experiences of a younger age. Like, you can imagine Kyle Walker being a right winger when he was 10 years old. You can imagine yeah. Andy Robertson being a left winger when he was 10, 12, 13 years old. Yeah. And even, like, there was an example the other day, I think Guardiola mentioned about Gundogan scoring the two goals. Mm. It, it got me thinking, linking back to kind of what we were going to go on about, I thought... Is Gundogan someone who potentially played as a forward when he was younger? Yeah. Because he has got that instinct where it's like, even like a Lampard at Chelsea when yeah. back in the day where you go, did they play in a position where they understand, like you said, going back to your, your session at the, the right back, does he recognise when to get in the box? Mm. It's a really interesting kind of concept to kind of to kind of look at. Yeah, definitely. The one, I mean, like, you know, staying with the professional game and staying with City, I think Jao Cancelo's been easily the best player this season. Yeah. Yet, will he get, and listen, I, I don't want to go on the record and say it because I'll get bullied on social media, but <laughs> will, he, will he get a Ballon d'Or nomination? No. But you look at how integral he's been to that Man City team where he's played as a centre-back, he's played as a right-back, played as a left-back, played as a holding midfielder. He's played anywhere and everywhere Pep's needed him to play. And he's done it, and done it exceptionally well. And he is such an integral part of the champions of England, champions of the Premier League, which we all seem to think is the best league in the world. You know, So does that not make him one of the best players in the world? And his adaptability to do that means that he's he's got that great grounding that makes him you know really really such an adaptable player and a player that a coach like Pep would look at and go yeah of course I want him because he's adaptable it's the same as James Milner James Milner's played at the top level for what years now yeah. played at City played at Liverpool you know yet how many positions we've we seen him playing right back centre back right wing he's played as a false nine at Liverpool I think as well at times you know, central midfield. They're all great players who can do that, probably because they've not been told, oh yeah, you're you're a right back. You're a you're a central midfielder. That's it. It's really interesting, like I said, I know going down this kind of pro game route, but like just thinking off the top of my head while you're talking, you look at almost a Jack Grealish and go, 
is he suddenly going through that almost coaching method methodology of Guardiola because he's been almost a, a carry the ball from the left, but that's all he can do. Yeah. And now he's gone into a team where it's like, you, I want you to play false nine, I want you to play right wing. So talking yeah. about him playing as a 10 next year, it's, and is that something, how how long would that would that take? Yeah, I think it's, it's, that's a great point to sort of like start changing the narrative as well, because yeah. I think, again, it goes back to like the human nature being, oh, we have to fit things in boxes and everything has to be tidy. It takes as long as it takes the player to, to grasp that concept, you know, is that we can accelerate that with analysis and showing them video. You know, we can accelerate that by trying to understand the player a little bit more, uh, how it is they best learn how it is, you know, they, they best communicate, what messages do they understand. You'll speak to some players at a youth level and like it's like a waste of time trying to coach them on a match day because they won't hear you because all they're just in their zone. They just are in their presence. So when do you coach them? Well, you coach them in breaks, you know. So how do we understand the players and what they need? And that's really the job of a good coach, a good facilitator can recognise the needs of players and adapt to those needs. If you are a one style of coach and you play one way and you do only things one way, then I'll, I'll say here, you're not a good coach because what you aren't able to do is support everyone. You've got 11 players on a pitch and you've got even 18 players in the squad at that, that, that level. Um, at youth level, you might have a, a few less, a few more. But you need to be able to help every single one of those players with their own learning and, and push it on from there. And personally, that's why I love coaching, because you get it wrong most of the time. So you're always getting an opportunity to, to chase getting it right. Ah, oh, this is what I've learned. This is what I took away from that. You know, so that Grealish example, I'll give you another is, you know, the Sterling that emerged in Brendan Rodgers' Liverpool. Would he get in Pep's side today? You know, it's food for thought. And because look at what Pep's done with Sterling now. And I think he's a superb player and such a key player for England now that, you know, I think most people are going to say that at the World Cup, you build a team that fits around Sterling and uh, and, and, and Kane as well. Yeah. Yeah, no, and like I said, going, moving on, and like you've done it, you've done it really well in terms of leading into, we're going to chat about coaching styles. Um how would, again, how would you kind of base your coaching styles and your coaching kind of practice on developing these things? Uh, yeah, it's a good question. I was thinking about this a lot of like throughout the, uh, the lead up to this today. And um, again, I think it's just flexibility is the key, but it depends on the time urgency of that. So... I think what's what's more valuable is players being able to try and discover things themselves. So, for example, if I have, and I, I always like talking about the wide concept, I always visualise that a little bit easier than what comes centrally. But if I've got a player and I want them to beat someone 1v1, then what I'm going to do in that session is I'm going to ask my centre midfielders to try and make runs away, to try and create the space for that opportunity for him to be 1v1, for them to be 1v1. So can I coach a player without talking to them? Yeah, of course I can. 
you know, how, how can I incorporate these things? Well, by having an open mind and thinking that how can I understand the player best, the, the person best, before I try and tell them what I think's right and wrong? Because essentially the players have got to go on the pitch and do the things themselves. And I love it when players come off and go, oh, I should have done this in that situation. Brilliant, because you're thinking now. Whereas if I'm coaching and I'm telling them what to do, well, I'm not coaching or, or trying to coach people. I'm coaching robots then who are just going to do what I tell them to do. That might be, you know, we look at the senior level again. When we look at that level, I, I need players who are going to do what I want them to do because I want points on the board and it's my, my head that's going to be on the, on the chopping block if that doesn't happen. So I, if I think that's the way we're going to win the game. And yeah, that's the way we're going to win the game. And I want players to give that a go. But where I'm trying to teach youth players at a younger level, then what I really want them to do is be exposed to as many learning opportunities as possible, trying that thing, but also trying to understand that person as best as possible. Go back to that example there. If I have a, a young person who can't deal with mistakes or can't, it doesn't have the coping mechanisms in place to deal with mistakes, then from my side, one, I need to help them to manage that. But then I also need to manage the amount of times that they're in that situation. So that then might mean that if we're in a practice, you know, a positional practice where they are in that area of the pitch, then I substitute them in and out of that. You know, they might then come and play in a different area of the pitch, you know, after 10 minutes. Okay, you've had 10 minutes of that, come out of that now. It might be 10 minutes of that, come to the side and what we're going to do is chat about each 1v1 or what I want you to do is write down each 1v1 situation you had and what you did. Did you think you did it right? What else do you think you could have done? So now instead of then cramming failure in them, they're then getting an opportunity to just look at maybe a couple of failures you will get some players who will go right I, like I made a mistake I'm going to keep going and it encourages them and it drives them okay I want to put that player in as many opportunities to make as much mistakes as possible in fact I'll double up on them and I'll go 2v1 against them so they make even more mistakes in that situation because if that motivates them to keep going and keep pushing then great you'll also have some players who respond better to going into sort of coaching styles uh, to a command style where they get told what to do. They respond better to that and they understand things a little bit better. There's nothing worse than as a coach, you're trying to deploy a Q&A as everyone's sort of favourite method on Twitter and players don't know the answer. Yeah. It's okay for players not to know the answer. And if they don't know the answer, how are they going to get to know it? I think a big one as well around that is, especially Q&A is players are very good at regurgitating the stuff that you've said to them in the past. So they'll yeah. say it and you think, oh, they know it. But for me, knowing is like, can you actually go and do it as well and kind of demonstrate it? So I think you've got to be really yeah. How many times have you asked players a question, ask a group of players a question, and they'll go, laces, um, uh, open body. And you're thinking, yeah. what are you talking about? And But you're right, because it's that was what a coach, you know, from their school or from there wherever told them oh well done yeah that's right and they, they they've gone oh brilliant that that's that's the one that stuck in my head because yeah. they wanted that good reward whereas what we need to try and open players up to is when do i need to do this with an open body when do i need to do this for a closed body when can i apply this situation here and 
that's tough. It's, it's tough because what you're trying to do essentially is cram every situation into one player's head and say, hey, remember and retain all this. Not a lot of players are going to. And I think that's when you start to recognise when you go into that YDP, into your PDP, where, oh, this player actually retains this a little bit better. Oh, actually, he might be a player that we play in the centre of the field, more towards the back. So now we're looking at a centre-back, a holding midfielder, you know, maybe even a number eight. So then balancing out those points of view from there. So, so yeah, I think you're right. The regurgitation is funny because I think whenever that happens, whenever I hear that as a coach, you know, I think, okay, the players aren't sure. And I'll always give them an opportunity. Hey, like, not quite. What do you think? Yeah. You know, and give them another chance. And, and, you know, but I think the environment you create is so important there. Because if it's an environment where they're, they're nervous and they're anxious to get things wrong, then, yeah, they are going to give you regurgitated stuff because they've heard it's right before. They're not going to think because all they care about is making sure you've, they've given you what they think is a right answer. Yeah. And kind of tying the two together, how much kind of discovery and trial and error would you allow for when you try to develop these progressive formations? Um, that's a great question. I mean, it's again, it's tough, isn't it? It's tough because it's, yeah. it's not binary. Yeah, you know, in terms of I say not binary, the wrong way of putting it. But it's a re- it's a really interesting concept because kind of I see where I spoke to a a rugby a famous rugby union coach who's like a yeah. mentor for me in the past, and we spoke a lot around this kind of games based teaching and uh, guided discovery and all that kind of stuff, and he said like players make new tactics and strategies and formations, not coaches. says if yeah. you've got, he worked in an environment where he had like the best 25 players in the world and he said, I'd basically just put on a session almost and let them go with it. And we created a new way of playing based off five, six players in that team that were world-class who had a new idea. And it's just really interesting to see how far that concept's allowed to go within football and with your better players at times. Yeah. Again, like you're saying there, on the right back understanding uh, a scenario where he can counter attack and be in the box, but is there a different picture that he saw where he could end up? I don't know. He might have thought, "I need to end up on the left side of the pitch," and it's creating the problem. It's it's a real, real kind of interesting. And I, and yeah. I don't know where it goes. Yeah, I think I used to work when I was a lot younger. I used to work on a concept that it was like the rule of three would be okay. Mistakes happened. I might just drive by, I might just drive by the session, ask that player or that small group, you know, okay, like what else could you have done? Have a think about that. So, you know, I don't need an answer to the question, but I'm trying to provoke that thought. If the same mistake happens again, well, I might then ask them a question and want an answer. The third time happens, I might stop and coach. But I think, again, going back to my, my sort of line of thinking is you've got to know the players for that, that to work. Yeah. Your first thing has to be you have to understand your players. And I know that's always tough, you know, when you're when you're working in an environment where you're just thrown into a group and it's okay, this is now your coach from now on. How do you get to know players? You talk to them. You know, you talk to them. What do players want to do when they come to training? They want to play football matches. So one of the first sessions I will always want to do when players turn up to a to, to a session is okay, bang, let's go straight into a game. And there might be certain things around that where we're looking at older players, they'll need to warm up first. But if they're 
they're smart enough. You know, if you give players the opportunity to warm themselves up, yeah, they will. You know, if you give them a, a process that they need to complete, they warm themselves up, yeah, they will. But, for example, one I always love is like the situations one. Okay, guys, we're going to play a 9v9. Um, Champions League final 2012. You're going to be Bayern Munich. You guys are going to be Chelsea. Here's going to be the, the rules. And 10 minutes into this, I'm going to send a player off, um, you know, and the other team is going to get an advantage. So, you know, then you're creating more of that onslaught that Chelsea had then with Bayern Munich sort of pressing them because yeah. they've got that overload in, in your practice. So the players are playing a game, but they're just recreating situations. So my thing would be get to know your players, get to know how long it's going to take certain players to grasp concepts, to, to get things going. Um, at a youth level, it's tough, isn't it? Because there isn't a, you know, you haven't got a chairman breathing down your neck going, oh, okay, like you've got three more games and if we don't get X amount of points or, you know, you'll be able to read the room yourself. If you're in November in the relegation zone, then you, you're probably thinking, right, I might not be in this role by Christmas. So it's a real case of just making sure you understand those. But at a youth side, I think it's just making sure that you can assess the player's competency so or their, their understanding as well. And great way of using that, Google Forms, Microsoft Forms, you know, get players to fill out questionnaires of how well they think they comprehend something. Do they have any questions? So then all of a sudden you're getting the feedback from the players as opposed to when you're in your planning phase you're going, oh, I need to do this, this and this. And you're sat there with your whiteboard and your pen and paper, but you haven't thought, well, actually, do the players understand this concept? Yeah. You know, going into it, do we need to spend more time on this? And just balancing it out, I think. And it's just that flexibility that I think coaches need to have and, and setups need to have as well. Yeah. No, really interesting. Like, um, just kind of start rounding up a little bit. Just trying to explore a little bit around... Where do you feel you're at with this progressive formations concept in your head and kind of where do you want to take it or where do you kind of see it going? Uh, yeah, in my head, I'm nowhere near perfecting it. You know, in terms of then, you know, every, every coach I think has a Bible with all their scrap bits of paper that they've drawn on. And, you know, when I look at them, when I make my notes and, and, and all that, yeah, I'm, I'm nowhere near it because... I think there's so much more to apply in practice. Um, I think it looks different in different environments as well. Like I said, if I'm working in a senior level where, you know, we're trying to win games and, and win, win promotion or leagues or avoid relegation, essentially what's important is winning three points. Then, you know, then using that style of play or that progressive formations approach is really important to understand the players. Because if I've walked into a changing room and I've got you know these players who are left over from last season, I haven't been able to bring in new players or get rid of some, well, I need to know, okay, this is what I've got in this room. These are the attributes of the players I've got in this room. Here's their failings. So here's where I need to get some cover or make sure we, you know, we're, we're not outnumbered in that, those areas you know, and work from there. But then from a youth side, I think, with implementation of it, I just think you've got to have the flexibility of an academy manager or a someone within it who can go, okay, cool. What do we try this week? What do we try and give the players the opportunity to learn and, and carry forward this week? What can they take into next week 
that's been a part of their their learning as well so as opposed to a curriculum looking like a um i don't know a a, a skill based one week one we do yeah. this technical skill week two this actually a situations one so week one oh we're going to be working on go to counter-attacking you mentioned that a couple of times week one we're working on counter-attacking okay well week two you might carry on working on counter-attacking you know so i just think there is that flexibility from there that needs to happen um and just being able to make sure that you've got colleagues who can challenge it as well but also can can work with it too yeah and who would you again off the top of your head whether it's a specific person or maybe in a different industry, where would you kind of go and tap into to maybe develop this further? Uh, I mean, at the moment, what I'm looking to do is move it back into um, a professional setting. So I'm looking to move back to a EPPP club. Um, I think it'd be really important for me to sort of understand the organisation and the playing style and their model and, and, and all of those concepts that come with it. Um, but I think being in that environment and being able to share that with coaches and not necessarily coaches just there, but coaches who have got decades of experience, you know, allowing those who have seen a variety of different things challenge that concept so that I can mould it and grow it from there as well. I think the other key part is actually looking at other sports as well. Um, you know, you touched on rugby. Well, actually, how can this same concept apply in rugby? You know, if you look at the development in terms of Aussie rules football and how that's grown, um, since a couple of rule changes in the last few years, actually, how can you introduce concepts like that there? Hockey as well. You know, how do, how, how do these concepts apply in these different areas? Because I think when you then touch, meet a coach, and they go, oh, you can't do that here. Well, why not? Why is that not going to work? You know, does it break rules? No. Is it going to help you score or, you know, whatever method it is that you get points and win in that sport? Does it help you do that? Okay, cool. Well, then surely that's the aim of what you're trying to do. Brilliant. And then lastly, just flip it. So if you were to work with an inexperienced coach or you were mentoring someone, where would you start with this concept? Um, I would start with like, it's okay to make mistakes. That is the, the first and foremost is that the first thing I would go to is go and make as many mistakes as you can, but reflect on that. You, you can't make mistakes if you don't have a reflective attitude. If you finish a session and your first thought is then, oh, can't wait to get home and have dinner. And it isn't, oh, actually, what did I do really well there? What could have worked better in that practice? What were some of my challenges there? Then I think, you know, making mistakes is, you know, being encouraged to make mistakes is, is challenging because you're not then thinking about those, those mistakes that you made as well. But I also think build a bit of thicker skin as well would be a starting point. I think if you are someone who can be easily offended, what you're going to stop yourself doing is being open to constructive criticism. Like I, I would love coaches to turn up to sessions that I do and just go, meh, could have been better. And then, you know, cool, let's go. Let's go grab a coffee. Let's go grab, grab a beer, grab, grab a drink. 
whatever it is, but I'm going to chew your ear off on actually what did you think I could have done better so I can try and gain a different perspective. I don't, I'm not going to take offence to it. I'm not going to be hurt by you thought my session was average. Great. I want to know why you thought that and what could I have done better? What were the things you observed that I didn't do? Because they might say one golden nugget of information that changes the way I coach, changes the way I stand, changes, you know, the way I demonstrate, you know, changes if I demonstrate. You know, there's so many points that I think are there. So if I'm working with a coach, I think it's those, be ready to make mistakes, but reflect. And also don't be hurt by constructive criticism. That's brilliant, Nick. Coach Help is here to help you. Do you want guidance on your own personal development? Do you want to reflect better? Coach Help's primary focus is to help teachers, practitioners, and coaches to do that. Get in touch today to set up a free consultation and ask any questions. You can follow us on Twitter at CoachHelp3 or email us at CoachHelp123 at gmail.com.